Welcome to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast. Each episode is designed to help the busy healthcare professional break down all aspects of heart failure into different topics so you can listen on the go during the course of your day. This podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. The AAHFN is a specialty organization dedicated to advancing nursing education, clinical practice, and research to improve heart failure patients' outcomes. You can learn more about the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and subscribe to this podcast today at aahfn.org. Hello, I'm Chris Bell. I'm moderating a discussion on cardiac amyloid and like to Welcome Cindy Byther with us today. Cindy is the Chief Nurse Practitioner for the Advanced Heart Failure Program at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. She's been an advanced practice provider for 26 years. Her whole career has been in the realm of heart failure with a focus on advanced heart failure. In addition to this, Cindy is also a past president of the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses and chair of the annual Advanced Heart Failure Symposium. AAHFN has taken on the challenge of breaking down amyloidosis into sections so that providers can focus on these sections one at a time in order to allow for frequent review and short time period. Our time together during these episodes will be devoted to short introduction and discussion of three specific phenotypes of amyloidosis associated with cardiovascular care, AL amyloid, ATTR amyloid wild type, ATTR hereditary type, as well as their diagnosis. And it's an exciting time that we're privileged to be a part with novel therapies that have shown the ability to slow progression of this worrisome disease process. Now the onus is on us, the medical community, both you and I, to recognize the characteristics and consider treatment options as quickly and efficiently as possible. So let's start a discussion by familiarizing ourselves with amyloidosis and consider its clinical impact. Cindy, can you give us a brief overview of what amyloid is and how it's produced and how this may harm the body? Thank you, Chris. I think we should start with the fact that the precursor to amyloid is naturally found in our system as something we're more familiar with under the label of prealbumin. It is produced in both the liver and the bone marrow and normally travels throughout the body, transporting thyroxin and retinol, which is vitamin A, all throughout the body. When it's in its normal form, it's comprised of four separate monomers that bind together into a tetramer. In amyloidosis, a mutation occurs in this protein that causes the tetramer to weaken, break apart, and then goes into separate monomers, which then misfold. These separate monomers then turn into amyloid fibrils, whose shape is much different than the prealbum in its normal form. These fibrils then can't travel through the body in their normal way, and instead they get caught up and build up within many organs of the body and cause a stiffening and a damage. Would you say that's more like an infiltrative process? I think it is an infiltrative process. It is under the heading of infiltrative cardiomyopathy because it does actually go into the organs themselves so that they can no longer function as they normally would. Excellent. There are several different disease processes associated with this broader umbrella of amyloidosis. And as we look into the main areas where these mutations take place and discuss their primary source of amyloid proteins. You're right, Chris. There are a lot of sources of amyloid, but we won't go into all of them. Of course, I don't even know all of them, probably. And the two main sources we're going to focus on during this series are the bone marrow and the liver. The bone marrow source leads to AL amyloidosis. It's sometimes called light chain amyloidosis. While they're under the same heading, the misfolding that comes from the liver is very different, and it requires very different therapies. There are two types of amyloid that originate in the liver. 
There's an HATTR amyloid. In other words, that's hereditary ATTR amyloid and wild-type amyloid. Many of you will remember that wild-type amyloid had a prior name of senile amyloid for many years. So before we start with the subtypes of amyloid, can we review the signs and symptoms that are most often considered hallmarks of disease manifestation so we can have a better understanding of the recognition of the disease? As a healthcare community, we need to be able to discern these characteristics and make every effort to consider the possibility of amyloid in our differential diagnosis. As you know, early diagnosis is the key to prolonging both the quality and quantity of the patient's life. Studies seem to demonstrate a 30% of patients with hereditary type ATTR in particular can have a delay of diagnosis up to seven to eight years. So, Cindy, what is the best way to improve our awareness of the signs and symptoms those that are deemed red flags that could be associated with the diagnosis of amyloid? Well, because because the amyloid deposits can accumulate in just about any organ, there are so many symptoms out there that could be occurring. So I think we should do this by system to try to help make sense of them. Absolutely. So since you and I deal with hearts, let's talk about the cardiac manifestations. Absolutely, because this is the one I know the most near and dear to my heart. When amyloid deposits are present in the heart, they can cause symptoms very similar to heart failure. Quite often, these patients are misdiagnosed with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or at the end stage of the disease, they have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. They get the same fatigue, swelling, and shortness of breath, so it's very hard to tell the difference. They may present with heart block or arrhythmias. Echo findings can often be mistaken for left ventricular hypertrophy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you have to really get into doing a thorough past medical history to help rule these out, especially a family history also in this case. Other hints can be elderly patients diagnosed with heart failure with no obvious risk factors, because why would you get this at an older age if you've not had any of the symptoms or diseases that lead up to it, such as coronary disease, especially those people that have some coronary disease but their heart failure is way out of proportion to the actual coronary disease. On the echocardiograms, what are a couple of the specific parameters that might clue us into a potential diagnosis? I know septal thickness, and have you had any dealings with apical sparing looking at strain imaging? Yeah, there's specific strain imaging that you should order for these echoes, and it's really important to make sure that you have an echocardiography team that knows how to take these pictures in the exact way. I think the other thing that we have to think about is that there's a speckling that happens within the echo, but you can make that happen sometimes with just the degree of how you turn up and down the game. So Cindy, can we discuss some of the findings that we have with the cardiovascular system? So when amyloid deposits are present in the heart, they cause a lot of the similar symptoms you get with heart failure. So quite often, these patients are misdiagnosed with I guess I'll call it run-of-the-mill heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Or at the end stage of the disease, they can get heart failure that looks like reduced ejection fraction. The fatigue, the swelling, the shortness of breath can all be there. They may also present with heart blocks or arrhythmias when they've had no precursor to that. And echo findings might be mistaken for left ventricular hypertrophy or thickened walls or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with also thickened walls. So a really thorough past medical history, including a family history, should be taken to help rule these out. 
Another hint may be the elderly patient diagnosed with heart failure who has no obvious risk factors, or the patient who has some coronary artery disease, but their heart failure is way out of proportion to what that coronary artery disease would lead you to think. I know a lot of times we have echoes that are already readily available in these patients. And what are a couple of the specific characteristics that may clue you in that cardiac amyloid should be suspicious in this particular patient? Very frequently, people talk about speckling on echoes. And I have watched my echocardiographer text be able to make speckling come and go quite frequently. So it has to be really focused on a good person doing the technique so that they make sure that this is really speckling. And what that is, is just inside the actual muscle that there are areas that look like they're almost shiny in what doesn't look like normal muscle. And Chris, you and I had talked earlier about the apical sparing on an echo, and maybe you'd like to go into that a little bit more of what you might do in your office. I think we're moving into apical sparing type images to help validate the diagnosis and maybe even use that as a means of surveillance to see if there's progression of disease or maybe improvement. Now that we have some billing codes, that's made that a little more attractive as well. It may require uploading software for some machines, but I think that's a technology that should be readily available for most groups and we can incorporate that in our practice. So we're looking to incorporate that in in different ways and that seems like an excellent opportunity. The neurological systems are a little bit of a different bear. I mean, that's not our bread and butter, and that's an area that's difficult to understand and oftentimes associated with complex polyneuropathies. So what do you think about those type characteristics, and how can we incorporate those into appropriate diagnosis? Well, those symptoms really can be mistaken for so many other diseases. And we all have to be alert to the complaints of our patients, not just the system we specialize in which I have to tell you before this disease became something that we really sought out, I would occasionally just blow off symptoms that the patients were talking about because it wasn't something I was going to deal with in my practice. But now I have to pay attention to it because it could potentially lead me to the actual diagnosis of amyloidosis. So if you think about it, there are a couple of the main systems is first the autonomic system. So with that, they complain of orthostatic hypotension erectile dysfunction, abnormal sweating, frequent urinary tract infections because of urinary retention. And for sensory motor dysfunction, this really starts with a change in sensation and it starts distally, but then progresses proximally. It can often be mistaken for diabetic neuropathy or another disease that's frequently mistaken as CIDP. The other term for it, the real term for that is chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And we have to pay really close attention if the patient has been treated for any of these neuropathies, but the typical treatment didn't work. Or another thing I have to look for is somebody who doesn't even have diabetes, yet they have peripheral neuropathy, because that's not common. And I don't know if you've seen this or not in your practice. Yeah, those folks are on tremendous amounts of gabapentin and you look and they don't even have diabetes and they're trying to treat a peripheral neuropathy that really doesn't have an etiology that's appreciated. The GI can often be rather ambiguous and slip up on us, but especially early on in stage, it can really have some detrimental effects. But how can we appreciate some of those GI symptoms and characteristics that might point us to amyloidosis? Well, when patients start talking about their GI symptoms, 
my assumption is that a lot of people are misdiagnosed to get for irritable bowel syndrome because they get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation, or both. And so that's the most likely category that I would assume they get placed in. The thing that's very scary, and when you meet these patients that have this manifestation, is their unbelievable weight loss, their unintentional weight loss. They have early satiety. As we all know, that's a heart failure symptom. And we can see that in other diseases as well. This diarrhea can be debilitating, and it keeps many people from leaving the house. I've talked to a couple people that have not left the house because the fear and the humiliation of soiling themselves previously in public. They have to be near a bathroom because it comes so fast and so frequently. And it really can be a cachexia of a very severe nature. These people lose an amazing amount of weight and look just devastatingly cachectic. Actually, our first patient experienced that, that we started on therapy with a 30-pound weight loss over about six months. It was unexplained, and it was pretty impressive. Renal disease is often related to amyloidosis and can cause severe polyuria, leading to renal failure. And as I understand it, may also affect eyesight. Can you give us some examples of those type disturbances that we may see? Yeah, again, these are questions I don't normally ask my patients, but I'm trying to make a new history and physical for myself that includes some of these things such as floaters or glaucoma. And then as well as you can get blood vessel changes and pupil abnormalities. So we can't forget to ask about that. And I frequently see my nephrologist talking about proteinuria for no reason. You test a UA on these people and you get high deposits of protein and there's no reason for it. And so we have to start thinking outside the box. So are there any symptoms that stand out in your mind that we've really not talked about that might be important to consider? Yes. One of the things that I truly have now put into my history and physical of patients is carpal tunnel syndrome. And a lot of us see that as a benign diagnosis, and we don't think of it as a precursor to a deadly disease, but we have to think again, especially when you think of carpal tunnel disease in the patient that's had it in more than just their dominant hand, because normally that's how carpal tunnel presents is the hand that you use all the time for video games or typing or hammer or whatever it is. That's where it usually happens. But in amyloid, carpal tunnel is usually bilateral, and it's a very early marker of the disease. And sometimes when I've questioned patients, they've had it sometimes up to 10 years before the diagnosis is made. And all that time of 10 years, the amyloid's just been building up in those organs. I really just think that this as well as spinal stenosis is something else that I've asked about for no reason that they don't have really bad arthritis. We have to think about that in spinal stenosis. And I really think that these are two strong markers of the disease and we have to get them into our histories and physical. And I don't know about you, Chris, but my histories and physicals have been so much more complete now that I'm dealing with this disease. May not need to break off into a vignette, but really quick, we had a patient the other day, 29 years of age with chest pain and breathlessness, and we really thought it was PE. And that was a negative workup, and he was persistent about the chest pain. Stress test was normal. We did a CT angiogram and noticed some calcium deposits, and they looked soft. In light of the symptoms and family history, we went ahead and did a cath, and he had multivessel critical disease ended up with an emergent five-vessel bypass. And when he came in a couple of weeks later, when I was first presented with him and talking with him, I noticed a scar on his left wrist. And I said, oh my goodness, have you had carpal tunnel? 
release? And he said, I have. I had it about three years ago, both hands. I said, both hands, both wrists, and you're 29 years old. So I'm not sure exactly what he may have. Sure enough, I looked at his echo and his septum is 1.8. Posterior wall is 1.6. So we actually started an amyloid eval on him and we'll see. It's in process. It's interesting to me, and you're probably a little more privy to how this works, why we have carpal tunnel and spinal stenosis. As I understand it, the infiltrative process is creating almost like a compartment type syndrome, and it's really suffocating that nervous system. How would you describe that to those who are trying to understand how that process works? Well, what I try to describe to the patient is that it really is an entrapment, that the fibrils get into those areas and they kind of enlarge them or things start to encroach on it, as well as the fact that it is in the nerve itself way back then. And so I don't know about you, but we're starting to talk and have been talking with our orthopedic surgeons that do these surgeries to please take a piece of the tissue and send it. Because the screening, if it started back then, we could have put people on treatment and prevented a lot of the infiltrative disease that has happened since that time. It's just like carpal tunnel syndrome, but it's of a totally different nature. Well, Cindy, thank you very much for your insights and overview of this emerging but treatable disease process called cardiac amyloid. As we review the signs and symptoms, we need to recognize in the clinical practice clue us into the possible diagnosis. Patients are depending on us to be mindful of this diagnosis, and it's imperative that we be diligent in our history of present illness and be open to the possibility our patients may have the disease. Not only should we be mindful of what this means in the life of our patients, but also the opportunity to bring awareness to the possibility of the disease manifesting itself in some of the patient's family members. We need to ask if there are signs or symptoms of this syndrome that are common or suggestive of amyloid in any family members. Fortunately, there are novel medications that can suppress progression of the disease and prolong not only the length of life, but improve quality of life as well. Uh, Delay in the diagnosis leads to increased buildup of the normal protein and subsequent progression of disease with more and more functional limitation akin to heart failure. And we have an opportunity to make a difference here, and the onus is on us to start doing something about it and making it part of our clinical process and pathways. Thank you again for your time. You've been listening to the Heart Failure Focus Podcast, brought to you by the American Association of Heart Failure Nurses. To learn more about the AAHFN and to subscribe to this podcast, please visit aahfn.org. We'll see you next time on the Heart Failure Focus Podcast.